Hi, WorkWell listeners. I'm really excited to share that my book, Work Better Together, is officially out. Conversations with WorkWell guests and feedback from listeners like you inspired this book. It's all about how to create a more human-centered workplace. And as we return to the office for many of us, this book can help you move forward into post-pandemic life with strategies and tools to strengthen your relationships and focus on your well-being. It's available now from your favorite book retailer. Our relationship with work is complicated. On one hand, we want to be successful and do well at our job. On the other hand, we want to live a full and energized life. Is it possible to do both? Or can we only be successful at work if we sacrifice our well-being? This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Sarah Ross. Sarah is an international keynote speaker and the founder and chief vitality officer at the leadership research firm she founded called Brain Ant. She's also the author of the book, Dear Work, Something Has to Change. Sarah is on a mission to help organizations and their leaders reignite a sense of aliveness in both their work and at home. She and her company do this by using brain science-based strategies to teach people how to amplify their emotional intelligence, resilience, and well-being. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I want to start. You say you're on a mission to help organizations and their leaders reignite a sense of aliveness in both yeah. their work and at home. So first of all, I, I'm on board with your mission, but it's also a big mission. So <laughs> tell me a little bit more. Tell me how you became passionate about this. Like, what's your story? Oh, <laughs> I, I keep trying different ways of where I want to start this, but I, I think that there is... The reason I use this word of aliveness, it's like mm -hmm. at the heart of it, it's this sense of vitality. It's this energy that we have. And I think what I really was focused on helping people manage their energy in a really, in a really skillful way so that they could stand out as being great leaders, cultivating the best in their people, lifting people up. And that was my mission. And that's what I was really focused on. And then COVID hit. And mm. when COVID hit, I saw a lot of really great, great leaders, leaders that I had been studying about what makes them great at what they do, who were still doing great work, but there was such a high cost to them. And what ended up happening is as I would talk to people, I would hear again and again, people being like, if I just wasn't so stressed, if I could just be less tired and less exhausted. And as a result, I, I was watching people do things where for example, they would feel that the only way to kind of keep working was to pull back. I mean, I think this is a huge part of this quiet quitting movement that we see where it feels like there's like this binary choice of either all in all day, every day to the point of exhaustion or to pull back and to pull away from that extra effort and to pull away from some of these opportunities to move for forward in their role. Or I think even worse we've seen it so clearly, great people who are so committed to what they do, who really do love their industries, 
but are making the choice to not just leave their roles, not just leave companies, but leave those industries entirely. And because I spend a lot of time working with people who have you know, made some of these decisions, we're also seeing a lot of people feeling a sense of regret. And so this is a long way of saying that what's fascinating is when we focus on feeling less, that's kind of the benchmark that we end up with. And most mm. people don't want to just feel less exhausted. Most people, when I ask them, they are tired of feeling tired. And so if we're going to really think about what are the strategies, what are the policies, what are the structures we put in place, we have to be really focused on where the direction of our actions are taking us. And I think this direction back to activating this aliveness factor is really about activating the entire person, that whole person, having access to everything that makes somebody feel this sense of aliveness. And that is doing important, meaningful work, but that's also what makes them who they are outside of work. And so I just really feel like focusing on where we want to go needs to be really clear. The big aha there for me was that, you know, it, it's it's not, you know, the, the answer of wanting to feel less tired doesn't actually equal or automatically equal feeling more alive. It's just feeling yeah. less tired. <laughs> well, and that really, I go back to, I've been trying to explain it this way. I remember when I was, I was learning to drive and my dad was teaching me how to drive. And the very first time that I had to go on a highway, we had to go through a construction zone. And there was, if you've ever done that, right? Like there's the, the concrete barriers and there's this single lane. And when you are just learning to drive, <laughs> you're constantly like, I couldn't help but, but focus on not hitting those barriers. And my dad said to me something that has proven to be important in so many ways. He said, don't look at what you don't want to hit. Look mm -hmm. at where you want to go. And it turns out from quite literally a physiological, psychological, and most notable a neurological perspective, it's called target fixation. When we look at the things that we don't want to hit or that we're trying to avoid, we are naturally designed to go towards those, which is the exact same reason why there are rules to move over a lane when you see a car on the side of the road. Because our natural instinct is to drive towards the things that we pay attention to. And so I do really fundamentally believe that if we are looking at trying to change the way people are thinking about work in general and living a life that is fulfilling to them. We have to be really specific at, at where we are putting that focus so that our actions can genuinely follow through on where we want to go versus where we don't want to be. Yeah, I, I love that. It's such a powerful mindset shift, especially now, because I feel like, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's, you know, people everywhere are like, I want to feel less tired. I want yes. to feel less stressed instead of I want to feel more alive. I want to yes. feel more engaged. I want to feel more focused. <laughs> I want to feel happier. <laughs> Whatever it is, we we tend to, and maybe that's human nature too. We kind of tend to focus more on the negative, and I, that's certainly my human nature. Probably oh. not everybody's, <laughs> but but it is like yeah. quite literally, it is our human tendency. Our brain is designed to have this little bit of a negativity bias. It's actually wired. It's wired in a way that it wants us to stay safe. It wants mm -hmm. us to stay comfortable. It it 
we are designed towards to go towards things that are effortless and immediately rewarding. Like that is that is very very natural for us, but it is also not often the things that fulfill us most yeah. from an yeah. energy perspective. And so as much as we are, it's a natural design to kind of worry and, and want the safest, easiest, most comfortable route, our brain's also designed to genuinely thrive and be at its best when we step into those challenges. So even though it's human nature and we have to work with our humanness, I fundamentally believe, uh, it also is amazing that we have the opportunity to choose our mindset, the opportunity yeah. to choose our focus and and make those shifts where we know they'll be in most service of what we care the most about. Yeah. And and you said something also that that I want to dig a little bit deeper into that, you know, as you were working with, you know, different leaders and different organizations during the height of, of the pandemic yeah. and COVID, this really started to kind of become much more of like a, you know, front seat issue. Yeah. It wasn't, you and I would both agree that this was probably bubbling up under the surface for many, many years. And yeah. we just learned like we do as humans, how to kind of keep it just under the surface yeah. <laughs> with okay. different coping mechanisms, whether they were healthy or not, we could probably debate that. But what was it about the pandemic or that you were seeing that, you know, kind of really blew the top off of this and made it either okay for people to talk about it, or it just became too much that like we had to do something differently? I mean, I think it really, there's so many different factors. There's no doubt about it. I think that when our, truly, like when our mortality is in our face, when there mm. is a sense of fear, when we are are suddenly forced to do things that we didn't even think we were capable of, like individually, we didn't know if we could manage mentally and emotionally, but then from a workplace perspective, like working in ways that we thought we couldn't, you know, people sheltering in place and working from home, doing many of these these different things. I think that that it is also our human nature to have a forced reflection. And all of a sudden, we took away many of the things that although many people, including myself, I, I am the queen of cycling through um, being really committed to kind of living this full life and working in a way that's fulfilling me. And then I get sucked into the cycle of, of kind of consuming overwork. But with that being said, all of a sudden we had all of these things that we could do if we wanted to. Many yeah. of us weren't taking advantage of them. Like even just, you know, being able to take vacations, leave our house, work out in a gym <laughs> with other people, um, go to a restaurant or even just simply genuinely walk down the street and be in the same places as other people. We, When that was taken away, I think there is no way for human nature not to pay attention to, to those things. Like we are mm -hmm. loss averse. <laughs> we may not yeah. take action on the things when they're available to us, but take them away and people really recognize it. And there's, there's this, we, it became so clear that looking at work as the thing that was going to give us fulfillment just wasn't possible. Like I say at the beginning of um, my book, Dear Work, Something Has to Change, I say at the beginning, like we sometimes treat work as if we're like, it's a person that we're in a relationship with and we're <laughs> waiting for it to like love us back and, and give us validation and tell us we can take breaks and all of those things. And when all we had was kind of that for many of us, it became really clear that it just was not enough. And yeah. while we 
have often talked about overworking. Um, I think that feeling of underliving is just mm. really became clear for people that we don't have all the time in the world. We don't always have the opportunities to do these things. So we have to think about life, not just work. Well, and and what I felt, you know, like, it, you know, in the rearview mirror, right, is, you know, I, I should know all of these things. Mm-hmm. Like, and maybe I do. Um, <laughs> and, and what I found during the pandemic, especially related to work, because I was one of those people that was fortunate enough to be able to work from yeah. home. Um, was that I was using work and perhaps, well, definitely using work and overwork as a coping mechanism, right? Because there's always more work to do. There's always more emails to send. There's always more emails to read. That's the way email works. (laughs) And so while in the beginning, I think it gave me a sense of comfort, there were, you know, about, you know, three, four months into it, I was like, man, why am I so tired? Why am I so cranky? Why am I so this? Why am I so, you know? And I, and I kind of had to step back and take that, you know, that reflection and say, okay, you know, work, you know, working and overworking isn't actually a good coping mechanism, but I love how you describe it as we weren't living, right? Like we were working, but we certainly weren't living. (laughs) And that that whole piece, there was so much around, you know, that, and I, I actually love the language languishing language because I do believe it is a very good description of what many people were experiencing and still are experiencing. Like to me, I say like when we're in that survival zone and that is different than survival mode, like survival Mm -hmm. mode is when truly we're, we're in that state of, you know, utter crisis and, and trying to make things work. But when we get into this place where we are making sacrifices and trade offs and we're overriding the things that we know would be best for us, that's where we get that feeling of just feeling stuck. And, yeah. and we realize that, and that is why this, this sense of aliveness, I think fundamentally matters. It can mm-hmm. feel big. You started out saying this, it can feel <laughs> big when you're just trying to, to kind of like, I just want to get my head above water. And yeah. it's like, so, so let's do that. But then do you, do you stay there or do you want something else? And I, and I think one of the last things that the pandemic did for me, and it was, it's kind of through some real self-reflection work is it made me afraid to, to set goals and think about the future a little bit. Like, cause I, I had all these things where I'd then feel a sense of disappointment. It's like, okay, but at least at the holidays, I'll be with my family again. And I am like an ultimate homebody who gets, like, I love lots of change in my professional life, but I am a true blue homebody. I like my traditions. I like the same things to happen. And even just looking forward to that and then that not being a possibility, it just felt like this sense of disappointment. So I went into protecting myself by not planning for things Mm. and just being like, just get through. And the reality is when we consistently stay in a mode of something, we get really used to that mode and we stop even recognizing that we've, that we've lowered the bar. And I think that that has happened for many people. I'm seeing people still in that, like a still in crisis mode, though crisis has passed, but be in this state of, of languishing. And I think they've forgotten that it's okay to want more. Yeah. And that was the, so I want to help people work in ways that are really fulfilling, but I also 
believe this second part of like what we do to ignite that sense of aliveness outside of work, our connections and movement and, and having downtime and exploring the world. Like those are really important things that we need to, to think about in a, in a larger picture if, if this is what we're going to aim for. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that in some way, shape or form, your work can and should help fuel this sense of aliveness, right? Because I mean, so, and people say this to me all the time, well, of course you have meaning and purpose in your job. You're the chief well-being officer. I do X, Y, or Z. And, you know, which leads to a really meaningful and fruitful conversation because yes, there's a lot of meaning and purpose in my job. No, no denying that. And, but I also recognize that not every job has that, but every job you know, for the most part, you connect with other human beings and, you know, that can bring a sense of meaning and purpose. And if not, you know, your job could be just simply to fuel what matters to you outside of your working hours, right? Does it give you the ability to do the things and spend time with the people um, and fund those things (laughs) um, that that bring you that sense of aliveness? And so I, I think that it's important to talk about or to think about work in that way, right? Because I think when we talk about mindset mindset shifts, I think putting work into that bigger picture of it allows me a sense of aliveness. If it's not directly in the work that I do, then it's with people that I work with or it because it affords me certain things outside of my, you know, my time at work. Yes. And I, I you know, I, I sometimes think that when we talk about purpose and meaning, it can feel very, very daunting. Like I think for many people, it's like, well, I don't know what that is. And what from doing this kind of work and looking at what are people that, that have this sense of aliveness in their work, which is where I started. And it turns out it has as much to do with how they work as it does to what they do outside of work, which should not be surprising at all. No, but, and I want to get into that. that. I was like, well, how do we just work better? And then I was like, oh, darn it. <laughs> Here's all these pieces that I know and I have already experienced similar to you, like I should know, but then to really see how that comes together. And so this kind of sense of, of aliveness, what it really, when I'm talking about, I'm talking about there's so much that that's a, a feeling that's generated, but it really comes down to this core energy piece. And, and I talk about how we generate vitality is when our energy, that mental, emotional, physical, when our energy is directed towards the things that matter to us in a way that's healthy for us. And, and like often we talk about doing meaningful work, but then we forget that in a way that is healthy for us. And, and that the things that matter to us, it doesn't have to be that your work is life-changing. It could be that what matters to you is you work in a way that brings the best out of other people. You know, you you work in a way that when you walk back in the door, the people who deserve the best of you still get the best of you. And, and so I think it's such a, the thing about if this aliveness factor, this this vitality quotient is the other thing I really came to understand is that it's very, it is personal. Like there are consistent things that are human nature for us to do. But at the end of the day, what makes us feel most like us, Mm. right? Like what makes us feel at our best, energized, alive, connected, grounded, like that's personal. And it's really easy to look around and think, well, that person's doing that. Well, Jen is the chief well-being officer. If I, you know, if I had a job like that then, but at the same time that it, then it takes away this 
personal aspect. And Mm -hmm. I have never spoken to anybody when I asked the question, you know, what is something where you just felt the most like you, you felt most alive. Every single person has examples. I am blown away by the diversity of those, of those answers sometimes, but we all can recognize that those things are there. So it's personal, but it's also, it's intentional. Like it, it is something we have to choose to do regardless of circumstances. It's not something that we, we can't outsource our sense of aliveness to somebody else. And, and in fact, I think one of the mistakes we make is waiting for our circumstances or waiting for other people to create the environments for us mm-hmm. to feel that way. It really does take intentional effort and work and self-awareness and doing things that in the moment may not be the thing you want to do, but knowing that the outcome of that is going to create an experience that matters to you. And I think the last piece that's important to remember is similarly to what you just said, Jen, about being a chief well-being officer and having lots of conversation and there's lots of beautiful things. I get to study and talk about (laughs) and do the things I love the most. Like I'm doing it right now. I get to do things I absolutely love. But anybody who works knows that there's a whole other part of it that we don't work. (laughs) But the reality reality is it's it's dynamic. It ebbs and it flows. We don't, even if you have every self-care practice in place and have the job that you love and family dynamics are just amazing. We, it's a dynamic ebbing and flowing of an experience. And Mm -hmm. so I think the last piece is just for people to recognize it's a process. It's this, it's a way of living our life. It's a way of approaching our life. And sometimes we're going to feel it in the most beautiful way. And other times we're just genuinely not going to, but Again, I go back to when we focus on where we want to be, our actions will keep taking us back there. We just have to honor the ebbs and flows of life as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that. So let's, let's. I want to hone in specifically on work um, yeah. and specifically on the title of your book, which I absolutely love, Dear Work, <laughs> Something Has to Change. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about what is it, about work that has to change and why, and also whose responsibility is it? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, I know because there's I, a loaded I question for you. And <laughs> I have read your work. So this could, this could t- be the rest of our, our conversation here. And, and there is the tactical and then there's the philosophical, but, but I will say this, the book really did come from, it opens with a letter and I will say that is the cleaned up version of the letter. <laughs> it might not have been quite as nicely put and there might have been a couple of additional words that my publisher wouldn't publish for good reason. Um, but that that really was a letter of just feeling frustrated, not even just with work, with myself, with this kind of, as I already mentioned, this kind of cycling of... I. I I want to do something I care about, but I don't want to feel consumed by it. I don't want to trade in my life for it. And I keep getting caught in this cycle. And so the title of Dear Work really was for us to start thinking about our relationship to work. Mm-hmm. And the the kind of, at the very end, I can give the conclusion away. The conclusion is work itself doesn't change. Like, again, if we recognize it, if we're waiting for it to love us back, it doesn't love us back. Work is not going to change for us. We need to change. And then we need to work together to change the way 
work is structured, change the way we work, others work, and what work, what, where work has a placement in our lives. And I think that that really matters because I'm sure you have found this in many of the conversations I'm having, panel discussions at various conferences. There's a little bit of a, of a, of a responsibility diffusion that's occurring where it's like we keep talking about this entity of work that needs to change uh, and then being like, well, those people need to do it. And, and you know, if, if just our leaders would do this and if the C-suite is involved, which is all necessary and important and true, but we all individually do have a contribution to mm-hmm. how work works. And cultures are made up of people. Some of those have more influence and power to change things than others. But I think it really is important to come from a place like I do. This book started out as a book about four leaders. And then via COVID uh, and many conversations, this became a work about the personal work of work. And I think we we have to each individually do some of that personal work to recognize what we're contributing to. Is it the things that we say are most important? Or are the ways we are sometimes working contributing to the problems that we are complaining about? And, and I and I think when we can recognize that we each have an opportunity to contribute to a solution and that we can contribute to the experiences other people are having at work, I think that's a really great first step. But it's a nuanced answer because with you know all the work that that you have been so beautifully bringing out into the open and and many other people are doing this idea of feeling exhausted and burnout and our well-being is not an individual problem it it also requires structural changes but those structural changes come from people who have the energy and the capacity to do them that have the the ability to stay connected to that that big picture who have the capacity to stay in those really difficult roles and fight for some of those things and make choices and push things forward that not everyone is always going to to answer uh, or appreciate and so i i think it is the role of everyone but i, mm-hmm. I think that when you've got a an environment, a world that is burnt out, it is very unfair to expect exhausted people to be full of energy and drive. And so if we don't do this personal work, then it becomes very hard to make these really big policies, structural, organizational, societal changes that we're aiming to make. Yeah. I mean, what you said is we all have a role to play, right? And so I think what I I'm definitely seeing, experiencing, you know, feeling in my work is that, you know, we need to move away from this place of continuing to point fingers and place blame, right? Um, And we need to come together as human beings, you know, all of us having different roles, whether we're in the C-suite or not. Um, you're right. We all we all have a role to play in you know how we show up, how we engage, and I also think that oftentimes people have a lot more um, power and agency, or maybe it's not power. People have a lot more influence and agency than they tend to believe they do, and so they get stuck there, right? Well, like, like I don't have the ability to change that. And I'm like, okay, well, what do you have the ability to change and focus on that? Because we all have the ability to change something, whether it's within ourselves or within our own teams or with just two other people that we work with regularly. 
Oh, I, I yeah. I'm going to just say that was beautifully summarized. Um, Thank you. And what, that's exactly what I meant to say. No, that is. And you did say that. Yeah. I was just summarizing it. No, it, that really is it. And I use the language of, you know, this managing and cultivating the sense of aliveness is yeah. intentional, but it really comes from, from this sense of agency. And the reality is when we feel powerless, we can mistake the sense of powerlessness for exhaustion. Mm-hmm. Like it, So, but when we feel a sense of empowerment, even if our environment isn't creating it for us, when we find that that sense of personal agency, it is amazing the energy we can draw from that we didn't even realize was there. Yeah, and this is why I mean, I'll, I'll just add to this: this we, if we're going to make these changes, like I believe we have to learn how to, like we need to learn better about how to um, manage ourselves and our energy and the practices we put in place to take breaks and and do things that refuel us and reinvigorate us it's so important but i this is why i've i this kind of bucket for me is really important we also do need to build new skills yeah we need to be willing to be open to learn and be open to feedback we need to have people who are not only just getting their work done or recognizing how they're getting their work done like we need to to keep emphasizing the need to build leadership skills that fall under the category of emotional intelligence, like how we do our work, how we make people feel doing our work. And those are skills that in combination, in parallel, do need to continue to be built and to be prioritized because it's really hard to feel like you matter and that you're doing work that matters when you work for a leader who is not a very good leader. Yeah. And the nuanced part of that is I used to say my title should be a monster hunter because I spent a lot of time doing executive coaching and leadership coaching and I'd, I'd get debriefed and or I'd work with one group and they're like, this was really great. We really needed this. But you know who really needs this? Like, those <laughs> monsters in the corner over there. And I'd always get so worried and I wouldn't be able to sleep the night before and I'd be going to meet this group of leaders or working with this particular major monster. And then I would get in there and I can tell you genuinely, I have met very few monsters. I might have met one. (laughs) That's a whole other story. But I would say almost always I met people trying their best who were feeling really exhausted, knowing they could do better, but feeling like they didn't have the capacity or time or support to do it. And and did did they, I mean, beyond, I guess, time, capacity, support, because I agree with that. And that is a huge barrier for people right now. Uh, myself included, but also I just think it's a different skill set that we're not being taught, right? And so I want to get into some, like, what are some of these tactical skills that people can start to do today in their life, in their work to see if that changes their, how they feel, their sense of vitality, their sense of aliveness, uh, you know, across the board, whether they are a leader of people or not, This is something that is accessible to every single one of us. Yes. Yeah. I I mean, there's when I work with people, there's a number of we're just about done. So through the writing of the book and the researching for the book, we kind of had these interview questions and assessments and surveys that we were having different people take. And so we're almost done putting it together. So it can be like this accessible kind of aliveness indicator assessment that that somebody can take. But it is different for everyone. I, you know, this is nothing new when somebody will come to me and they're like, I'm just, I feel 
consumed by what I do. I don't want to not do it, but I don't want to keep doing it this way. There's like three buckets we can we can look at. We can look at people's beliefs and their mindsets about work and about success in particular, like what they believe is necessary in order to be successful. We can look at how people are working with the stress that they are experiencing. But I almost find that sometimes the lowest hanging fruit is to look at what people are doing outside of work, to just kind of what can you do that is not dependent on your circumstances, that is not dependent on your work structures, that's not even dependent on the leader that you work for. Like what might be some of those things? And this will be nothing new because this is the Work Well podcast and I've had the opportunity to miss it. <laughs> listen to so many of your guests, but like it is, and I've heard you say this, Jen, like one of the first questions I will ask a leader is the, the top three I ask right away is, um, do you, do you take breaks in the day? Do you regularly get seven and a half plus hours of sleep? <laughs> do you have an end to your work day? Mm-hmm. And I have found, though, I mean, there's movement, there's many other things that really matter, but, but those three tend to be the easiest places for people to be able to do something immediately. Um, breaks in the day, it, the reality is it, so many people are like, I, you know, I push through so that when I'm at home, I can just relax. And then I Dr. Phillip. And I said, well, how's that working for you? Like, yeah, how you know, you that actually work for almost yeah. none of us. And then we try to go to sleep and it's like, and I want to get good sleep, but my brain just won't turn off. And mm-hmm. it's, it makes sense. But what we have to do is we have to work with our humanness and our brain works by what we do consistently. And so if we, if we never take breaks and we consistently try to push through, and then we just expect that our brain will be able to shut off because now it's time to go to sleep or now we want to have some, some, free time, truthfully, our brain doesn't work that way. It, it does what it does consistently. So we have to teach ourselves to just be able to disconnect, to give that permission to ourselves and then re-engage. Uh, the end of the workday is, I am biased because it's something that I put in place about five years ago. And outside of sleep, which ch- I changed for me about a decade ago, it is, I am beyond committed to my to my sleep it can be a little bit extreme at times of not wanting to move my my bedtime or wind down routine but truly even though the work is not done and it is never done do you have a time when you commit to ending your work day of course that's going to change sometimes but that i think is something for people that even if you can do it start once a week twice a week, build this in to just know that, that you can stop working. You have to stop working at some point can help give people a little bit of that power and agency back that we were talking about. Yeah. And, and I would reinforce, I mean, so powerful, but I would reinforce if, if you are a leader, how critical that is, because if you never stop working, then the people that work for you don't believe they can ever stop working. And it just creates a vicious cycle of not good things. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the thing I'm seeing the most right now, one yeah. of the suggestions I keep making to any organization I'm working with when they're talking about how do we build this community or excuse me, how do we build this culture where where you know well-being and our people actually matter? And they tell me all the things that they are doing. And 
and I am I am optimistic to see so many things being done. Are we doing them consistently? Are we doing them in all the ways we need to? But but at least people are trying. But the mm-hmm. suggestion I have made to the organizations I'm working with is whether you are a leader or the organization uh, in general, it's a very simple question uh, to send something out that allows people to answer anonymously. Where are we sending mixed messages? Yeah. Like just a very, where are we saying one thing is important, but demonstrating something else is? And this is becomes really important, especially for leaders to be able to take feedback um, and take things in and recognize that although you may have the best of intentions, which 99% of the people I meet do, 99 yeah. are trying to do the best by their people. It doesn't mean that that's your impact. And sometimes the philosophy as do as I say, not as I do, is creating an environment of really, really mixed messages. And and our and that isn't what we do. We, given, given the space, most people will do things to belong before they'll do things to change. Like they'll, we'll do things to, yeah. to feel like everyone else, to increase that sense of safety. Our, our, our leaders really are our barometers. They not right. only set the emotional tone, but whether leaders realize it or not, their actions become the expectations people believe that leader has of them. And if you say, you know, it's really important to, to shut it down at night, and then it's like, don't worry, you know, I'm just trying to close out my inbox and it's 1130 at night. That is a mixed message. And though it's well-intentioned, uh, I think we really start need to start paying attention to what nonverbal cues we are putting out in, in the workplace. Yeah, because they are often uh, more powerful than the, the verbal cues. <laughs> Absolutely. Anybody who's about, ever been in a relationship and then you've said to your partner, you're, it's like they look like they're upset. And then, they, and then you say like, what's wrong? And they're like, nothing. nothing. We all know that nothing <laughs> is like never nothing. But we know that because of the body language. But we seem to forget that when we are are thinking about it from a workplace perspective. Yeah. And one other area I, I want to touch on, because I know you talk about this in your book, and, and I feel like this is so important. It certainly um, has been really important for me in my life and my career is defining success for ourselves. Yeah. Um, especially when it comes to, I mean, you know, we were just talking about leader behavior and how they often set the tone. And I think that especially for me and my own story and so many people that I've talked to, what led to burnout for me was actually just following what others did because I perceived them to be successful. Yeah. And I hadn't taken the step of saying, okay, well, hold on a second. What does success look like for me? And then what are the behaviors associated with that success, right? Because Absolutely. I was just following others, right? And that's why the, the leader's role is so critical in terms of their own behavior. But I think also helping others understand what success for them could and should look like. And it doesn't look the same for everybody. So I want to get, I want to get to that because you talk about it a lot and I think it's so important and so powerful. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Well, I can also say that one of the best leaders I ever worked for, truly one of the best, we had a a bit of a hard conversation not too long ago after this book came out. Um, 
because she created this environment where people were so unbelievably loyal, like just so unbelievably loyal to her because she was amazing and she made work matter and she made us matter. But she also had a habit of of having teams who would burn out Mm. and they would burn out often because of their loyalty to her and because of the direction that that was set. And that was, that was something that, you know, I can put myself right in that bucket, which is where I think, oh, if there's an undertone and and I will hit the, the kind of definition of success, but if there is an undertone, I really hope we have number one, a sense of self-compassion for ourselves, because I think in most instances, we are really just doing our best with the resources, the information, the environment we are working in. And we need to grant grace to other people because they are doing that as well. And you already said it. It's like we are human beings who need to work together as human beings and figure out what is going to work most effectively, work in a way that works for us. But be careful to not just point fingers at people who have created, you know, this environment we don't like, because it's rarely a single person. It is often, you know, a a learned behavior, a cultural expectation. I say in the book, as a a society, we've morphed overwork into an admirable work ethic because we, we really, we really have. We have a tendency we have a tendency to do that. So defining success for yourself is really important, but it is really, 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 really hard. It just, it genuinely is. I, even for myself, I, I hit it most days and then I'll look and I will catch myself, which is, I really do limit my time. I almost never scroll social media. I look at things, but I limit my time because it is the thing that if I am working in a way that is healthy for me and I am showing up as my best to the people who deserve the very best of me because there are many times where they end up with the leftover me. I can all of a sudden discount that because I'll look around and I'll be like, well, I should be doing more. And it's like, but Mm -hmm. I defined this as success. And so I think we just have to recognize that it is really hard. Um, And I would find people saying they need to redefine success for themselves, but didn't know where to start. And what happened for me as I was doing these interviews for the book, I found that there were kind of these, what I call four success traps. And they, I call them success traps because they are things that have actually made us successful at some point in our life or have given us a benefit to some degree, but over time trap us. Like they, they keep us from fulfilling our potential. They keep us stuck in that survival mode. And they can be really, really deceptive because they can get tied into our values and the way mm-hmm. we see ourselves. And and I can just kind of very quickly define those, those four traps because for different people, it might be helpful to understand. I find myself falling into all four at times, but I think to give people a starting point, one of the traps that I see most consistently with people who love their work is that they think because they love their work, that's the ultimate protector that, you know, you can't burn out if you, if you love your work and that the rules of overwork and consequences of overwork don't apply to you because you love it so much. The challenge is this kind of over investment, over personalization ends up putting people in this place where everything feels personal. Like everything is either validation or vindication. And it is Mm -hmm. 
one or the other. And I've seen so many people who are like, but I care. Why don't people care? But what they don't realize is they create an environment where there is no opportunity for other people's perspectives or ideas, where there is this all or nothing mentality that ends up getting um, getting created. And, and this kind of overinvestment keeps you from being able to recognize where you are plateauing and where you might actually be getting in the way of, of other people doing the work that they need to do in the way they do it in a way that's healthy for them as well. So this kind of believing that if you love your work, you are you are uh, safe from from burnout is is one trap that I see people fall into always, um, especially if it's work that's you know really meaningful and important. Of course, I not of course, but I did a lot of work with um, healthcare workers, frontline healthcare workers throughout the pandemic, and of and this was one of those places. Like this work, even if I'm tired, it's too important for me to be tired. And ultimately, at the end, then it has really, really negative outcomes because you can only run on fumes for so long until you absolutely can't. And then and then, then there is a person who's no longer available and you're no longer to help in the places that you need to. It's a big deal. So they're, loving your work can't be the only thing you love and feel fulfilled by. Uh, the second one, I always say it's kind of wrapped around the value of being of service, being a helper, being somebody who's super responsive. Um, and we're seeing this now in this kind of era of work-life blur that, <laughs> that we need work-life boundaries, that, that just because somebody can reach you doesn't mean that you have to be available to respond to them. And I think that this is really important in a world where work can go everywhere with us, where we just are picking up our phone away of being to being able to be in contact and establishing some of those establishing some of those those boundaries so that you have that space to actually do the work for yourself enjoy the life that you want to have so being helpful is important being available 24/7 is unsustainable yeah. It also sets a precedent, as we said, for other people, and, and it creates this always-on environment. Uh, the third one is this, this kind of around the value of, of drive, where we believe that if we, you know, if we work eight hours, that's good. But if we work six, if we work double that, 16 hours, we'll get double the productivity out of it. Mm-hmm. And we, I mean, as much as the data shows and the amount of people have said that there is a, a point of diminishing returns, I think it is still hard for people to recognize when they reach that point where more work stops being an asset and actually starts to become a liability. Yeah. Uh, and I have, oh my gosh, those are some interesting stories of people who have just <laughs> been too tired and have sent emails or have done things. Like I have heard some of the most, some make you laugh and then some are just like, <gasps> like, yeah, like company ending, like just unbelievable. So we need to also recognize that, that we require rest. Our brain requires it. Our soul requires it. And so this belief that you can work your way out of overwork and more work has more of an impact is is an easy one. And the last one is one that I am working on continuously right now. And it is the one that we believe that setting high standards uh, is what fuels us. And again, that 
standards is not a problem, but when the standard is perfection, when that standard is far higher, that expectation we have for ourselves is far higher than anyone would ever have, then we're kind of constantly in this chase and strive mode where we never feel enough. And I caught myself in the place of mistaking putting myself down as a way of driving myself forward. And the Mm. only reason I literally figured that out is because I sat across from a client once and I felt like they literally were mimicking back my internal voice and it was their internal voice. And my first instinct to them was, you know, what a cruel way to talk to yourself. And I was like, oh, I do the same thing and mistake that for being the thing that's going to push us forward. And so each of those are wrapped around values that matter to us, right? Like caring for your work, being helpful, being driven, um, striving for excellence. Those are all powerful values for us to have. But when we morph those in a way that causes us to override our needs in order to achieve those, they end up being the things that trap us. And those are often the areas we need to redefine our success around. Wow. Okay. I, 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 I was hearing my internal voice through all of that. <laughs> <laughs> Is there one for you that, that you find yourself slipping into that you need to work on? Yeah, it's, it's certainly the, yeah, I certainly the, the, the third one, right. The kind of yeah. the, the way that I, you know, talk to myself, I'm certainly not my biggest cheerleader by <laughs> any stretch of the imagination. And, but I think what's powerful to understand is that the belief that's driving that is that if I, you know, kind of talk negatively to myself, it's going to push me to do, to go further, to do better. And, yeah. and that's just not true. Right. Um, it, and, and yeah. The um, there's kind of four emotions that really play into that. We often do things from a sense of fear that will cause us to override ourselves, a feeling of obligation, um, a feeling of guilt. And the one that, I always say is the icky one because it's hard to acknowledge also a sense of validation. Mm -hmm. So when we look at many of those beliefs, we have a tendency to override our needs when those emotions come in into play. Mm -hmm. Like that fear of if I lower the bar, will I still be driven? That that is really genuine. Feeling like I need to work all the time might be because I feel guilty if I'm not doing something. Like there's more hours in the day. Maybe I should do more. I still have energy. If I'm not straight out depleted, am I dedicated enough? Um, Answering every email might come from a sense of obligation and um, being, having people applaud us for working hard and that work ethic can be a very, very seductive and enticing Mm -hmm. thing that makes redefining that, that success for us challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Well, Sarah, this, this has been amazing. I, I think I got through like three of the questions that I actually wanted to ask you. No, please do not apologize at all. I feel like we need a part two so (laughs) we can keep going. Um, (laughs) but for now, I, I just want to uh, thank you for your time, you know, for, for all that you're putting out into the world, um, to, make us think about aliveness as opposed to being less tired um, and, and, and everything that, that you do to motivate me and inspire me every day. Um, I appreciate it and I appreciate you being on the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the time. I'm so grateful Sarah could be with us today to talk about thriving at work. Thank you to our producers, Rivet360, and our listeners. 
You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well. The information, opinions, and recommendations expressed by guests on this Deloitte podcast series are for general information and should not be considered as specific advice or services.